morning. You're listening to Wake the F Up on 101.5 UMFM. We air on Thursdays from 11 a.m. until noon. We're a local feminist radio show that strives to be as intersectional and anti-colonial as possible. My name is Christina. I use pronouns she, her. The UMFM is located on the stolen lands of Anishinaabeg, Nihaiwak, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. We respect the treaties that were made on these territories. We acknowledge the harms and mistakes of the past and those that are still ongoing in the present. We acknowledge our privilege as settlers on this land, and we dedicate ourselves to move forward in partnership with Indigenous communities in a spirit of decolonization and collaboration. For today's episode, I will be talking about a few things. Um, First, I will be discussing uh, some topics on the ethics of voting. I went to uh, something called the Ethics Cafe last Friday. It was an event hosted by the Manitoba Association for Rights and Liberties. Some really interesting conversations happened, and I will be sharing kind of what I absorbed from that. I will also spend some time talking about masculinity. International Men's Day just passed on Tuesday, um, and I was able to go to a discussion on that as well. So definitely some ideas to uh, review with you folks on that. Um, And then I will give a shout out as well to the Trans Day of Remembrance that just passed yesterday um, at the end of the episode. So for the Ethics Cafe, uh, before I dive into this, I'm just going to preface this by saying I'm extremely critical of democracy to begin with uh, on whether or not it can provide real and lasting change. Um, It can't. It's reformist. Change won't happen as long as we're operating under the inherently exploitative system that is capitalism. Uh, So with that in mind... I will continue. So this ethics cafe was just held at a cafe. As I mentioned, it was hosted by the Manitoba Association for Rights and Liberties. Uh, If you're not, if you're interested in that and need more information on that, just shoot us a message on our Instagram, wake the F up, UMFM, if you wanted to hear about future events that they host. Um, They had a facilitator uh, who was a actually professor here at the University of Manitoba, and they had us discuss some questions that they threw out to the room and it began by just discussions with our small groups at our tables and then it extended to a large uh, group-wide discussion throughout the whole cafe. So the first question they asked is whether the voting age should be lowered and if so to what? So I've never thought about this before. This was my first time kind of considering this at all. Uh, Some very interesting ideas were thrown around. My first thought is, okay, well, a benefit to this could definitely be that it would normalize it from a younger age. Uh, It would normalize the fact that everything is political. People who, you know, try to claim that we should stop making everything political. Everything is political. Um, That is the state of things. And the sooner we normalize that, the better amongst all ages, really. And then for a lot of people, of course, uh, I definitely heard a lot of people saying, myself included, that uh, say if we lowered it to 16. I know that when I was 16, I was definitely not informed enough to know to make a really uh, well-considered decision on who I should vote for. People were like, yeah, people would at that age, at the age of 16, would most likely just vote for what their parents voted for. And then the discussion opened up to the rest of the room. And one of the first people that stood up claimed 
uh, he claimed to be coming from a neuroscientific standpoint. He said that people's minds are not fully developed until their early 20s in the cognitive sense, and that for that reason, uh, people should not be allowed to vote. And then the next person that stood up was a 17-year-old who was very clearly well-learned on issues of politics and said, basically just made her case. Um, The people who, between 16 and 18, uh, if they did vote, it probably would be the people who are particularly passionate and informed about it. Um, Maybe not even that much of a difference from 18-year-olds. Some people grew concerned. They're like, okay, well, if we push it down to 16, how far is this going to go? I can't say that I have much of a conclusion on it i would actually love to hear people's thoughts on this if you shoot us a message on our instagram or twitter wake the f up umfm i would love to hear your thoughts and maybe continue this conversation in a future uh, future episode one of the next questions they posed was whether voting should be mandatory and some thoughts came up amidst our tables and i'd say one of the noteworthy things that was mentioned once the discussion opened up to the whole floor, uh, an Australian man stood up and said, hey, voting is already mandatory in Australia. Let me tell you what that looks like. So, you know, we all listened intently. So he said that uh, it's mandatory uh, amongst everyone. I believe he said that voting was also a national holiday. Of course, they had done, well, according to him, they had done a lot of work in terms of making it accessible to everyone. Um, If you weren't able to make it to a voting station for whatever reason, you would be able to have accommodations made. For example, if you had an ability that uh, made it difficult for you to leave your house, etc., something like that, you know, they would provide those accommodations, according to him. And he said that if people did not vote, they would either face a fine of, I think he said about $1,300 or 90 days jail time. So that's an interesting thought. Um, He says, of course, that um, about 10% of the population would still just choose to abstain from voting. And that was a case that a lot of people kind of argued for, you know, if people really didn't want to vote, but were forced to, there is always the option to abstain. And about 10% of people still do so in Australia. Another concern is that uh, if people are forced to vote and they are not aware of their options, there is a tendency for people to just kind of choose the first option on the list. And that would create a bias towards whichever party came first alphabetically. Um, Being a psychology student, I know how we control for that kind of thing when it comes up in a psychological survey, and that is quite simply to just randomize the order in which the uh, parties are presented in. So that would be um, pretty easy to combat that kind of bias. Uh, You know, of course, there would still be randomness there, but you can avoid the bias. So my major concern with whether voting should be mandatory is accessibility. Um, So if we backtrack a little bit and look at... Canadian voting, which is not mandatory, and the current issues that we do have with voting, um, there are some issues with it. There are very much issues with accessibility. A big one is that you need an ID to vote. And most of us maybe don't consider that 
a lot of people don't have an ID. There's a lot of people that don't have IDs. There may be people who don't have a driver's license. There may be people who live on reservations and don't engage with our colonial government as much as possible, but you know they still want to cast their vote because it is going to affect their lives. So the fact that we require IDs in the first place does kind of leave out a certain chunk of the population and namely actually Indigenous people. Um, So that is an issue already. So I think before we can even begin to consider something like whether or not voting should be mandatory in Canada, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of accessibility. I'm not saying that I know what the answer is there, um, but definitely it is a problem that people needing IDs is something that is exclusionary. So there should be perhaps an alternative kind of way to prove who you are. Um, There should be more leniency there and less uh, strict bureaucracy, especially to people who are Indigenous or who don't have a driver's license or whatever other reason might prevent you from having an ID. Furthermore, um, whenever the topic comes up of whether or not something should be mandatory, Of course, we're thinking of the punitive measures. So as I mentioned, he said, you know, this Australian guy who was talking about his experience having lived in Australia with the voting being mandatory. He said that the fine for not voting was about 1300 and if you or uh, 90 days jail time. And he said most people chose the jail time if they didn't vote. Um, This is concerning to me because I know that this is a pretty intense punishment, if you ask me. Um, that's significant. It's going to, for most people, affect your life pretty dramatically, financially, regardless of which option you choose. And of course, that will definitely disproportionately affect people who are in the lower class. Um, furthermore, whenever there is such a harsh punishment, there is bias in our judicial system. There's bias amidst all Canadians, uh, myself included. You know, we do operate in a colonial system and we have to be very cognizant of the fact that our system by design does target marginalized people more harshly. It makes bureaucracy more difficult for people who are marginalized and I would pretty much expect almost certainly that if voting was mandatory there would that would almost guarantee some kind of bureaucratic nightmare ensuing for indigenous people and for a lot of marginalized people that would result in people being overly punished and that would just you know perpetuate the whole you know, perpetuate the dis, uh, the disproportionate rate of Indigenous people who are in prison, which perpetuates the stereotype that Indigenous people are people who are more likely to commit crime, and it just further reinforces the system in that way. <clears throat> uh, it was also brought up whether voting should be a national holiday. Um, people didn't discuss that much. I think, absolutely. Um, I think that would be a great idea. You know, it's a pretty easy way to incentivize people to vote because the fact that a lot of us still work on voting day, a lot of us still may have other commitments on voting day, um, can make it difficult for people to vote. So I think it absolutely should be a national holiday. One of the questions they asked was a pretty big question. And a lot of, uh, we started to kind of go down the rabbit hole with this one. So they asked, 
uh, what is leading to the worldwide decline of democracy, if there is one, and if so, how can we stop it? I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on worldwide news. Um, there were some people who were more in the know about that who seemed to kind of be in agreement that there was a worldwide decline of democracy and people basically cited various reasons this may be. Um, I would agree that a huge one, especially in Canada, is political apathy. Uh, people we're apathetic about politics you know there's how many people have you met that say you know whatever my vote doesn't matter I'm one voice and there's millions and millions of Canadians and truly there's a lot of people that think that way and it actually leads to huge numbers of people being underrepresented because they think that their voice collectively doesn't matter sorry individually they think their voice doesn't matter whereas collectively it would so whether there's a worldwide decline of democracy um one reason that uh, a good friend of mine cited was that it's basically capitalism in decay. So right now, in 2019, we are under capitalism and it's late capitalism. So that means that, you know, it's not new. Uh, in fact, none of us really know a lifetime that has been outside of capitalism, at least in this part of the world. Um and it has inevitably reached the point where it can no longer be sustainable. So as capitalism runs its course, being the inherently exploitative system that it is, um, to review, by the way, what capitalism is, it's just a economic system where there is the owner of the means of the production and then there are the workers. The owner of the means of production uh, makes profit uh, from the workers uh, and ultimately is set up to make way more money than any of the workers. It's, it's in inherently exploitative by definition. Uh, any profit that is made is essentially, by definition, the unpaid wages of the working class. Now, ultimately, as this system gets further and further exacerbated uh, and, you know, runs its historical course, eventually there will be such a dramatic gap in wealth that it's just not going to work anymore you are just going to suck the working class so dry of their money that ultimately there's not going to be anyone to make money off of anymore and once that point is reached capitalism is essentially set up to collapse and we are pretty well at that point so that will absolutely lead to not only political apathy, but a whole abundance of things. Um, a lot more people discussed kind of nuanced uh, <sighs> arguments on the decline of democracy worldwide. Uh, I can pretty much only tell you what I remember. There was a lot of nuanced discussion, uh, but the, the, de the capitalism decay was really the main thing that I pulled from that. There's another question that I remember that was posed at the Ethics Cafe. They brought up this case where they gave the example of a talent show contestant 
uh, on one of those shows, I don't know, So You Think You Can Dance or America's Got Talent or something, I don't know, one of those things where there's a set of judges that are on the show, but also there's it's open to the public voting on their favorite, favorite contestants, and that's taken into consideration. Um, I don't watch these shows, um, but my understanding is, you know, both the judges' assessment and the public vote are important to the outcome of the performer. So they gave the example of a particular performer who the judges basically said, this performer has no talent, like they're just awful. They're, you know, there's there's nothing to be seen here. But a huge amount of the public was very much in favor of this performer. And they kind of overwhelmingly were voting to keep this performer in, despite the fact that the judges were saying that there was no talent. Um, and then the question went on. Is there something to be, is there a lesson to be learned for democracy here? So I'll let you kind of sit with that for a moment. Now, if we do um, kind of humor this and use this as an analogy for democracy, the number one thing that I would say is, well, Yes, the vote, the voters, sorry, the uh, the judges are meant to be kind of experts on the subject matter. But the way to really address this is to ensure that the public has the most access to information as possible. So I think this is an accessibility question. Uh, there needs to be simply more work to be done for the public to understand and to be able to, you know, seek and get that information on how they can make an informed decision. And then furthermore, um, this example uh, isn't a perfect analogy to voting, of course, because the, the judges are assessing the person on their talent based on certain criteria, whereas the public would be voting on whether or not they find it entertaining. So if you consider that, that's a really huge difference. You know, of course, they're actually voting probably on entirely different criteria. You would hope that in voting uh, for your elected officials that people are not voting for, whoever is most entertaining, <clears throat> you would hope. Um, another of the things that was brought up by a lot of people, um, well, actually, I think it might have been one of the questions that was posed was whether there should be a cap placed on uh, how much money the people who are running in politics can kind of put towards their like advertising and their campaign. Um, I believe they said there actually is a cap, but basically people were like, well, you know, there's ways that people can kind of get around that. Um, that's just kind of people with money basically wouldn't have an issue finding different ways to get that advertising to happen if they want to. Um, there was a lot of kind of consensus on the fact that uh, if you have more money, you're more likely to succeed uh, as a politician. And that, of course, is a kind of excluding criteria for somebody who can go into politics, uh, somebody who is already in the middle or upper class uh, will never be able to appropriately represent a very important chunk of the population, which is the lower class, and understand at much depth really the issues that affect the most marginalized people of our country. So there was generally kind of a lot of consensus in the room that 
Uh, big corporations had way more say in the outcome of politics, just in, in any uh, stage of politics running its course, than we would like it to. The fact is money and large amounts of money are behind most things. So being a psychology student, I really wanted to come up with what my major takeaway from this whole discussion was. Um, I was sitting there with my fingers on my temples and my brow furrow, just listening to all these different viewpoints. And I was, I got really lost in the nuance in a lot of it. And boy, is there ever a lot of nuance to be had. And I'm like, there must be some kind of takeaway from this. Being the psychology student, I'm like, what what does this really come down to? What is motivating people? Um, and before I kind of tell you what I really took away from it, I want to talk about one of the discussions that genuinely happened in that room. One of the ladies towards the sort of second half of this event kind of piped up and said that if you were not happy with the politics in your area, that uh, I remember her saying uh People don't have as much power as they they have more power than they think they do. What you need to do is you need to phone and email your local politicians and you need to give them a piece of your mind. And she was a very feisty lady. She was saying she does this all the time. Um, and I take issue with this for two reasons. And a lot of people in the room took issue with this very quickly because she was a white woman and definitely very clearly demonstrated that she had no idea that white people are heard more, they're taken seriously more. Um, the people who really have something to complain about, marginalized people are not given a voice in our society so much as they should be. And they can phone their politicians and rally outside of the legislative building and still not be taken as seriously as white people ever will be. So that's the first issue that I take uh, take with it. And believe me, many people in the room took issue with it. Um, the second issue that I have with it, and I've said this before, and it's always worth saying again, whenever you're talking to somebody about what will genuinely result in social change, and somebody brings up an individual solution as a method for social change, uh, such as, you know, if you're considering uh, the change that is needed for climate action, you know, turning off your water while you're brushing your teeth, Sure, absolutely do that. Make those individual steps in your life uh, to make that change happen. But ultimately, for the large change to happen, uh, it needs really, the energy needs to be directed at the people in charge. It needs to be directed at the capitalists, at the rich 1% who are making all these decisions, who are cutting the corners and are actively, repeatedly and consistently denying the humanity and the life of earth and the proletariat and just profiting <laughs> off the backs of the entire working class. So I'll leave you with that for now. I'll be right back. And when I return, we'll continue our discussion on in, uh, International Men's Day and masculinity and about the Trans Day of Remembrance. They say boys don't cry, but your dad has shed a lot of tears. They say I should be a strong man, but baby, I'm still filled with fear. Sometimes I don't know who I am. Sometimes I question why I'm here. 
I just wanna be a good dad. Will I be? I have no idea. They say girls shouldn't be tough, and moms should raise the kids at home. But baby, I know that that isn't true. 'Cause your mama's the toughest person I know. I wanna raise you to be like her and watch you show the world how to do it on your own. I'm still trying to figure out who I am. I don't wanna mess this up or do this wrong. I'm gonna be there for your first breath. I don't know if I'll be there for your first step. I can promise you that I'll try to work less. But the tour is routed, and I got this album. Put in so many hours, and I just want the outcome to be something that I can look back and I can be proud of. Don't wanna be a dad that's living in FaceTime, but I got a world to sing to and you at the same time. I won't spoil you, you can trust that. But your sweet 16, you get a bus pass. Had your heart broken, been there, done that. I love you and I can't give you enough for that. Get back to community that raised you up. Read Langston Hughes. I suggest the raisin in the sun. Listen to Sam Cooke. A change gon' come. You put the work in. Don't worry about the praise, my love. Don't try to change the world. Find something that you love and do it every day. Do that for the rest of your life, and eventually the world will change. I'll be patient. One more month. You'll wrap your fingers round my thumb. Times are changing, I know. But who am I if I'm the person you become? If I'm still growing up. You read the Alchemist. Listen to your teachers, but cheat in calculus. Tell the truth, regardless of the consequence. And every day, give your mama a compliment. Take your girl to the prom, but don't get too drunk. Hanging out the limo, slow dance with your woman in your arms. Sneak her in after, but boy, you better tiptoe. Don't wake your mama. Do yoga, learn about karma. Find God, but leave the dogma. Quickest way to happiness: learning to be selfless. Ask more questions. Talk about yourself less. Study David Bowie, James Baldwin, and Tupac. Watch the sunset with best friends from a rooftop. Wear a helmet. Don't be stupid. Jaywalk, but look before you do it. If it snows, go outside, build a jump, get some help, get a sled, thrash the hill with your friends till it melts. Go to festivals, camp, fall in love and dance. You're only young once, my love one. This is your chance. Take risks. Cause light moves so fast. You're only young once, my love one. This is your chance. I'll be patient. One more month. You wrap your fingers round my thumb. Times are changing, I know. But who am I if I'm the
Good morning and welcome back to Wake the F Up on 101.5 UMFM. We are on Thursdays from 11 a.m. till noon. We're a local feminist radio show that strives to be as intersectional and anti-colonial as possible. UMFM broadcasts from Treaty 1 territory. My name is Christina. I use pronouns she, her. Before I continue the discussion with International Men's Day and the Trans Day of Remembrance, I will just conclude what I was talking about before uh, with this ethics cafe that I attended and kind of what I pulled from it um, in the end. So ultimately, we have systems in place that are motivating people to act a certain way. And really what it is, is capitalism. If it weren't for capitalism, people would not be so financially motivated, so motivated to exploit. And that truly is the nature of capitalism. It is inherently exploitative. So as it runs its course, it will create a further and further divide between the proletariat and uh, the bourgeoisie, which uh, just to review, the bourgeoisie is the owner of the means of production and the proletariat is just another word for the working class. So the people who do the work. And really, I've just kind of come full circle with my criticism of democracy in general, in that, you know, we can talk about how democracy can be a more productive force uh, in the existing, existing system. We can talk about proportional representation, which was brought up as well. I just didn't uh, delve into it this time. But ultimately, it will always be reformist. Any changes that are made within the government can be made within you know the couple of years that a certain party is in power and then the next party that comes in power will ultimately just come in and rewrite it and nothing is permanent there's nothing that's really making any moves to combat capitalism and as long as that is the case there will always be ethics problems within democracy so from the psychology student, I would say that is my major takeaway from the discussion on the ethics of voting. I am going to continue my discussion with conversation on masculinity, given that International Men's Day just passed on Tuesday, November 19th. Um, firstly, I was very happy to see, at least amidst the masculine people that I know, there was far more discussion this year than last year and last year than the year before on International Men's Day. Um, because as we make our analysis of patriarchy and of the sexism that is inherent in our dominant discourses, uh, in our de deconstruction of gender roles, we must be aware of how gender roles are harmful to everybody. So this day was a really great opportunity to really hash out some discussion on that. So on Tuesday, I was lucky enough to attend a discussion meeting hosted by a university group uh, at the University of Manitoba, uh, awesome group. I was part of it last year. It's the University of Manitoba Consciousness Raising Association of Feminists. Their whole gig is that they host discussion meetings such as the one that we had on Tuesday. Um, so without further ado, one of the big things that we talked about was how can we redefine masculinity so that it is so that it can be positive essentially because many of us especially many of the people that listen to this show you know I know I'm aware I don't have a lot of right-wing listeners so I would hope that uh, um, as a listener you're aware of some aspects of toxic masculinity um, <laughs> so 
if you've listened to the show before, uh, you'll know that we did have an episode before on masculinity when Nikolai came to the show. And he was actually at the discussion meeting on Tuesday before. So if you listen to that show, you're probably just going to hear some repetition today, but I'll kind of try to summarize it um, if you haven't heard it before. So I'll contrast this with um, something that a lot of us are more familiar with, and uh, that is gender-oppressed people uh, combating the oppression due to their gender. Um, Say that five times fast. Uh, But essentially, women need to combat the whole idea that we are, uh, in society's eye, considered passive, less intelligent, uh, inferior uh, less capable, less effective at what we do, that what we, that our whole realm is, that is domestic, that we are more emotional, etc., etc., etc. You know, the whole feminine stereotype that we all know up and down. Now, as we break out of that, it's actually a very empowering thing because as we break out of it, we are moving away from the idea that we are being powerless and moving more towards a very uh, kind of liberating and uh, kind of consolidating concept that we are more independent people and that we can, uh, you know, exert our influence in this world um, as best as we can. So on the flip side of that, um, when men are breaking out of the stereotype, they're actually breaking away from the idea that they need to be active actors in this world in order to have worth. So what does that mean? So what what does a positive masculinity look like? Can you envision somebody that you know that is positively masculine? Can you envision maybe an icon in the media that is positively masculine? So a lot of what was put forth is how we can take the existing narratives and discourses that surround masculinity and how can they be reformulated so that men in our world actually have something to strive towards. So there's various examples of this. Um, One is the positive fatherhood type of narrative. So latching on to the existing under uh, sort of the existing narrative that says that, you know, men are supposed to be providers for their family, supposed to be protectors and, you know, loving towards their families in that way. That can be reformulated in a very positive light. Not to say that that one is entirely negative to begin with, but there are aspects that can be pulled from that to make it entirely Uh, not toxic, uh, you know, to say the least. There are other aspects of masculinity that can kind of be challenged and reformulated to be positive, such as the characteristic of confidence and the characteristic of acting upon the world and being effective in the world. Uh, This applies to various things. Uh, It also applies namely to work ethic. So there is actually uh, a positive narrative that can be pulled from masculine ideas surrounding work ethic that can actually be reformulated to be used for good. Now, bear me, bear with me on this one, because there was a time where I would have really cringed at the thought that anything positive can be pulled from this, um, but I can really get behind it. So I'm going to use a personal example in this one. Uh, this summer, as many of you know, I worked as a forest firefighter 
And that was and is a very male-dominated area of work. And the culture in the workplace was very, very motivating, like very just work and get that bread and make your coin and don't even question whether or not you want overtime. Yes, of course you want overtime. Um, And I get how in a lot of places that can be exhausting. I found that in my particular context, it was actually very sustainable and you are able to put that work in. If you just kind of stop overthinking and put your head down and work, I was able to do a lot of things that I wasn't previously able to do. Um, And I'm sure this Uh, analogy can be applied, sorry, this analysis rather can be applied to many areas of work. Uh, Obviously, without question, there is a fine line to be drawn here. You know, I challenge the idea strongly that our worth should be valued on our productivity. That is a capitalist notion, after all. Um, But if we are people that are intending to be productive for one way or another, whether that's at our workplace or some project that we're passionate about, it can be great to have a strong work ethic. Another example of a narrative that can kind of be reformulated to make a more positive image of masculinity can be found uh, kind of in dating culture and just kind of uh, like in relationships in general. Um, So in dating, there is ultimately the notion that you should care about the person that you're dating, ideally, in theory. I'm sure we all know people we know men that the first time that they demonstrated any sign of caring about another person was when they fell in love. Uh, And of course, this needs uh, to be separated from the idea that uh, women or gender oppressed people are rehab centers for men. I am not encouraging that at all. Uh, As with all of these other things, there is a fine line to be drawn here. And I am merely discussing just various aspects of masculinity that can be reformulated to move away from the toxicity as we know it. So those are just kind of a few really excellent examples that were discussed uh, at that discussion meeting that was held by MCraft on Tuesday on International Men's Day. Um, If you want to hear more on this, there's actually a really great video done by ContraPoints on YouTube. It is simply called Men and it kind of discusses something very similar to what I have discussed here and goes into even further depth. Um, I find that ContraPoints makes really excellent analyses of a lot of things. This is just one of them. Um, Be sure to check that out. Another thing that kind of came up in Tuesday's discussion as we were talking about masculinity was where do these ideas of masculinity as we know it come from? It's something we've discussed on the show, but uh, I think it bears repeating. You know, we can only use reminders. So masculinity, as we know it, it much, much like pretty much everything else, is a social construct. So it was not in place forever. Uh, there are a lot of people that will make the argument that, okay, yes, there are differences between men and women. Uh, but how do we tease that apart? Um, so Ideas of capitalism as we know them have colonial oranges, origins, oranges, it's fruit, folks. Uh, it comes from fruit. Um, <laughs> so colonialism, uh, white European colonialism basically got introduced here when white Europeans came, uh, colonized the indigenous land and people. And with it, they brought their European 
social norms. So what are those social norms? They are that the man is in the public sphere, he goes and acts on the world, he works, he brings home the money for the family, and the woman's role in that uh, in this schema is that she is in charge of everything that is domestic, she is in charge of the home, she's in charge of raising the children. Um, and basically, the way that, and this very strongly exacerbates the natural differences that are found between men and women. Now, I know I'm using very binary language right now. Of course, I am very much aware of the gender and sexuality spectrums. Uh, I'm just uh, using this for kind of a theoretical analysis. Um, so if you take the natural differences between men and women and you put them in a Venn diagram, one circle is men, one circle is women. You've got a list of their characteristics, um, you know, how much strength they have, their personality, uh, everything, a anything under the sun that you associate with men and women. In actuality, that Venn diagram will have like 90% overlap. But in the social ideology that comes with colonialism and the gender roles and the roles related to the home and the family structure as we know them, these differences are exacerbated. So it basically just kind of takes the Venn diagram and moves these circles away from each other so that actually there's no overlap. So this means that everything that is masculine is not feminine, everything that is feminine is not masculine, and men are from Pluto and women are from Mars. So, given that this is one of the aspects of the kind of moral attachment that comes with colonialism that is specifically on men and women, given that it has European origins, of course it will have morals attached to it based on pretty much everything else. So, with it comes the moral assumption that the European religion is good and other religions are not good. Now, of course, this is a theoretical analysis. I will make this very clear. This is not something I believe. I am purely describing what is colonial thought. Furthermore, because it has white European origins, it defines white people and everything that is associated with whiteness as good and pure, and everything that is not is ultimately inferior. So this is the social colonial system that is the foundation upon which our country was and, and our government was essentially built. Now, when we bring capitalism into the question, so what is capitalism? Capitalism came about with the Industrial Revolution. Suddenly, we could use factories to mass produce items that were previously only handmade kind of artisanal items they maybe would take months to make. You could now mass produce them in a factory for much cheaper and sell them to people for much cheaper and get them to them much quicker. Now, also with capitalism, it creates a system where the owner of the means of production has the capability and in fact, the system is designed so that the owner of the means of production uh, makes profit off of the unpaid wages of the workers. So, given that that's the economic system, without going into too much detail on the history of this, 
ultimately, both colonialism and capitalism are systems upon which our society operates, Canadian government operates to this very day. So this answers the question on why is our government, our society, our people still motivated to uphold inequality as we do? And it is because it makes them money to do so. If they can uphold their morals that what is white is what is good, then they can uphold the moral that the white people are the people who should be in charge, have power, and have all the money. Ultimately, it comes down to materialism. Who has access to material? Who has access to wealth? Who will continue to have access to material and wealth? And who will continue to not have access to material and wealth? And this is how those who are marginalized stay marginalized, and that is how people in power remain in power. So with that in mind, it is far more than just a psychological bullheadedness leading to people in power not being empathetic to marginalized people. The very fact is they are profiting off of the fact that there are people that are marginalized and they will continue to make money and be in power if those people can continue to be marginalized. So switching gears here and kind of covering the last topic that I will be on today's episode. Uh, the Trans Day of Remembrance was yesterday on Wednesday, November 20th. Um, we will certainly, we're planning on having future episodes where we discuss more in depth on trans folks. Um, but I will just give you a few quick reminders because we can all use reminders. I can use reminders as a cis person. Uh, the number one way that you can be an ally to trans people is to offer up your pronouns when you're introducing yourself. Um, regardless of the company that you're in, as soon as you give your name, give your pronouns. My name is Christina. I use pronouns she, her. When you introduce yourself to one person or in a group setting, share your pronouns. It just normalizes it and it means that that people who are trans do not have to do all of the work in normalizing sharing pronouns. People who quote unquote look like they use the pronouns that they do should not be excluded from having to share their pronouns because they think it's obvious. It's not always obvious and we should move away that from the idea that somebody's gender is obvious. Somebody's gender is something that that individual knows that that individual knows and we should trust them on. So be an ally. Share your pronouns. Uh, another great thing that you can do as an ally, don't pretend that this isn't still a problem. The Trans Day of Remembrance acknowledges the past of trans people being uh, disproportionately targeted for violence, uh, killing, lynching, and they continue to be to this day. So I even had a conversation just the other day with a good friend of mine who seemed to be under the impression that we don't have a lot more work to do in this department. And of course we do. We, as cis people, cannot have an informed opinion on that matter. We need to trust trans people when they say that this is still an ongoing problem. So like I said, uh, in a future episode, we will certainly go more in depth uh, on trans folks and the lives of trans people. Um, and that's kind of it for today. So covered a lot of ground today. If you have any comments or suggestions for future shows, if you remember earlier in the episode, I kind of wanted to hear your feedback on whether the voting age should be lowered and if so, to what? Because I really kind of don't have a conclusion on that and I would love to hear what you folks have to think about that. Um, you can contact us via the Twitter or the Instagram. Both are wake the F up, UMFM. 
This has been Wake the F Up on 11.5 UMFM, your local feminist radio show that broadcasts from Treaty 1 territory. My name's Christina, and I'll catch you next week.